you haven't already, would you take your copy of God's Word and let's turn this morning to Genesis chapter 22. In a matter of weeks, we're going to be beginning a series in the study in the book of Exodus. Um, But before we get there, I want to dip into two places in the book of Genesis that will hopefully serve our time well in the coming weeks and months, reminding us just some of the themes and some of the emphasis that we'll see in Exodus, and in a manner of speaking, setting the stage for us here in the book of Genesis. So Genesis chapter 22 is where we'll be this morning. Let's read and hear God's word together. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood, the burnt offering, and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing You have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed." Because you've obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Do you join with me and let's ask that God would help us by the ministry of his own spirit as we consider his word this morning. Father, we pray with your word before us, a simple prayer that We know you delight to answer because it is the very words that you've given to us and the very heart that you've made clear to us of what you have for us this morning. Father, we ask that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies, that we might see how good and how faithful they are. Father, we pray that you might open our eyes to understand wonderful things from your law. Father, we pray that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. Lord, we pray that you would satisfy us with your presence as it's made known to us through your word and your risen Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, undoubtedly, Genesis 22 is one of those passages that stands on its own, uh, almost towering above the 
other portions of Scripture, the other accounts in Genesis, certainly. Uh, it's filled with drama. It's filled with mystery. It's filled with tension. And it's filled with a wonderful ending. And so for many reasons, there is a temptation to isolate this towering text from the surrounding context and making all sorts of mistakes and bad decisions in terms of interpreting it and applying it. The past 10 chapters, the story of Genesis has been tracing the life of Abraham. There's several generations that are accounted and really become the, the chapter marks of Genesis. Abraham is the current chapter in which you find yourself here in this portion of Genesis. And through the last 10 chapters, if you've read through this, you'll remember there's some highs and some lows. The narrator is pointing out these great strides of faith along with stumbling and unbelief in Abraham's life. But even in recognizing kind of the broader context around chapter 22, the temptation still remains for us this morning to place our focus on the wrong actor. We are meant to watch and to notice, as in any story or narrative, there's primary and secondary characters. As you read Genesis 22, who are we meant to watch and hear and understand in order to make not only the right interpretation, but the most helpful application. Well, we often place the spotlight on ourselves. You might not admit this, but we do it quite readily. We could do it quite easily even here this morning by just making a first few observations of the first two verses. We read that God tests, and we know that God tests his people. And we conclude that I am one of God's people. And we read ourselves into the story as the main actor in the text. Sometimes we're a little better and we recognize, oh, this is about Abraham. And we read, again, God tested Abraham. Abraham's certainly an example. We know that from other portions of Scripture. Therefore, Abraham is the main actor and the primary lesson should come through him. Now, we could probably make some really helpful and even biblical observations if we spotlighted either of those emphases. But while Abraham's faith is certainly critical to the understanding of this story, is it ultimately the ultimate emphasis, focus, or point of this narrative? Read back through and just notice in passing some of the emphasis here. It says in verse 1, God tested. It says in verse 8 that there Abraham assures Isaac that God will provide. Verse 12, the Lord stops Abraham from offering Isaac. Verse 13, the Lord provides the ram. Verse 14, Abraham himself names this place, the Lord will provide. Verse 15 and 18, it's the Lord who speaks and promises to bless Abraham and his offspring and through his offspring all the nations. What I'm belaboring here is probably pretty obvious, but the narrative and the exaltation of the creator and his provision is really the emphasis emphasis more than exclusively the creature and his faith. When we read Genesis 22, we are meant to walk away with this inescapable plot line that is clear before us. The Lord provides the lamb so that his people might live. Or more succinctly, we are to be comforted as God's people that our faithful covenant Lord can be trusted to provide all things, especially our redemption. I want us to see that that is the overarching plot line of this particular narrative and why that is so central to understanding not only Genesis, not only Exodus, the entire message of the scriptures, the purpose of this gathering, and the only way that your life will make sense. What do we learn from Genesis 22 about God and his provision? Number one, we are meant to learn that we can expect his provision to be tested. We can expect the fact of his provision to be tested. Look back at verse 1. 
After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. The truth of scripture and therefore of our lives is that God does test his people. He does not tempt us, but he most certainly tests. The distinction's important. Why? Because of the purpose of each. God tests us to reveal, to draw forth the substance of our faith that we might trust him. Through testing, the scriptures teach that we're actually spiritually matured so that we learn steadfastness, so that we understand and taste endurance, and that we experience God's faithfulness. God tests in order to reveal our faith and to strengthen it upon him who is the only trustworthy one. Satan tempts us to draw us into sin that we might trust in ourselves. Through temptation, we are lured and we are enticed by our own desires, which then gives birth to sin. Think of the two different outcomes. Resting and trusting in God with all endurance and hope that does not disappoint. Resting and trusting in ourselves, being led into sin, which is bitter and brings forth judgment and wrath. It too could not be more opposed. But the two are very much a reality of the Christian's life. As Christians, we should both expect the testing of our faith and the temptation to forsake the only faithful one. The distinction between the two is critically important. And one of the recurring themes of God's people, not only here in Genesis 22, but in all of Scripture, has to do with this recurring theme of the testing of our confidence in God's faithfulness. Will he provide or will he forsake? Is he sufficient or will I lack? The same trial you know as well as I do, it takes on various circumstances, but it can be traced straight through the life of Abraham here, Isaac, Jacob, on into the nations of Israel coming out of Egypt, preserved in the wilderness. It doesn't end in the promised land once they cross over the Jordan River. You still read about this same testing of their faith in regards to the prophets and the word that they brought. Even in captivity in Babylon, what is God's word? Will not the Lord remain faithful to his promise? The righteous branch in Jeremiah. You see it run all the way through scripture. The question of God and his provision, it continues to rise up through God's word and into our lives, perhaps even this very morning, asking the very question, do I really believe the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want? I know that one, but do I believe it? The testing of Abraham could be really summarized, I think, in two ways. To question God's goodness and to question his greatness. The Lord tested Abraham. What was the essence of this temptation? Well, certainly God's provision. Is God good in his provision? And is God truly great in his provision? Consider this question of his goodness. Now, as the reader, we are helpfully tipped off by the narrator, right in verse 1, that what we're about to read is a test. And as we keep reading, as we come all the way through the account, we see the ending, and we know that how it all turns out, that the Lord is most certainly faithful in his provision. Now, we know this, but remember, put yourself in the shoes of somebody who's hearing this for the first time. Maybe you are hearing this for the first time. Put yourself in the shoes of Abram who's living it in real time. He doesn't have a narrator speaking over his life, letting him know of what exactly is happening. He can't skip ahead to verse 8, verse 9, verse 11, and know there's going to be a ram. It's going to be okay. He does not know the details, but he knows his God. 
But no doubt, living this out in real time, this is most certainly, as verse 1 says, a test. What kind of test? Well, who is this God? What sort of God is this that I have been following, that I've left my own country in the Ur of the Chaldees? Child sacrifice was common among the Canaanites. Is Yahweh just another bloodthirsty deity that demands the death of children? Is God just like the gods of the pagan nations that surround me? Is he a fickle God? That maybe he says one thing but then changes his mind later. Has God gotten back on his promise? I mean, he's already promised to Noah. Genesis chapter 9. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it from man. For his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man, shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Is this God that I'm following really good? Because as we read our Bibles, we have even added information. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, God speaks explicitly through Moses, you shall not murder. In Deuteronomy 12, God would warn his people not to imitate the Canaanites in burning their children to the pagan gods. So how could God seemingly contradict his own law by asking Abraham to offer his son is a burnt offering. Is Yahweh good or not? Is he just like all the other gods of the peoples, or is he different? Could it be that the nature of this testing has everything to do with proving to Abraham that God is most certainly good and that he is most certainly unlike all the other pagan gods of the surrounding nations? Do you know anything of this sort of testing? Unmet expectations. Disappointments. Financial loss. Your plans for your life being shredded. Words like Parkinson's. Inoperable. Hospice. Adultery, estrangement, all of those very words can lead us down a particular path of concluding God is not good. I'm forsaken, and he's unfaithful. Now hold on to that conclusion for a minute, because we must weigh it according to the testimony of Scripture and this same God who has spoken infallibly to us. Place it alongside the testimony of divine revelation. James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Well, this doesn't seem like a good gift. How does that help me? Comma. With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That means because of who God is, he only gives what is good always. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We are invited to experientially taste where we're pushed forward through one of the five senses to not only is it intellectually good for you to know, but it is so good that you need to taste of this goodness. It is that good and it is that certain. Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is Good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. What we can say is this. If we were to compile the many scriptures that testify of God's goodness, is that God is originally good in himself. Meaning, goodness is not an attribute that exists outside of God that he took and then attached to himself and said, I want you to know who I am. I am good. That goodness is originally in God. God depends upon no one for his goodness. He has it as an act of himself in who he is. God is infinitely good. It is God's goodness that reminds us 
it's trustworthy because if God is good and if God is infinite in His very being, then we can trust that He shall always be good and that the source of this goodness is infinite goodness. There is no well that runs out. There is no spring that dries up. There is no season where suddenly God's goodness lacks because the source of all goodness is God. God is infinite. His goodness is infinite. If we continue in this, we must come to the conclusion that God is perfectly good. Why? Because God is perfect. He is good without any impoverishment. There's never been a moment in history where he wanted to do good but could not give the best. He only gives out of his essence of his eternal perfect goodness. And God's goodness is unchanging. That's why James attaches that to that in 117. God is so good that he cannot be bad. Otherwise, he would not be good. He would not be God. And because God's goodness is of his essence, we can count on his goodness being present for all eternity. There will never come a millennia in our existence as God's people where we can say, his goodness was a bit lacking today. Because of who he is. And yet, the proven testimony of God's faithful provision will often be tested as we doubt his goodness. But the test of his goodness is intended to draw out our faith, carried along by steadfastness and hope and endurance, leading us to say, my God is good. He does me no harm. He leads me in paths of righteousness. The temptation, the testing, often has to do with questioning his goodness. But you could also summarize what's happening here in 22 as a question of God's greatness. God told Abraham to take his only son. In fact, this phrase, your only son, it's repeated three times in the narrative. That's not just filler. It's not word count buffer, high school students. This is most certainly explicit for a reason. Take your only son. Abraham, your son Isaac, your only son. You and Isaac, your only son. We're meant to hear that. The fact is significant, not only the emotional and physical loss of this loss of this son, the sacrifice that this son would bring, but the ultimate loss is in Isaac as a means of God's promise to Abraham. Meaning, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. To offer up Isaac as a sacrifice is to offer up the entire future of God's plan and God's promises to him. After these things, do you know what happens in 21? Isaac's born. He casts out the bondwoman and the son that should not be his heir. All his eggs are literally in the Isaac basket. And God says, take your only son. What is at stake here has everything to do with the promise of God and his faithfulness that goes back to Genesis chapter 3. Will God provide a deliverer or not? The tension is here is the whole plot line of Genesis looks like it might actually end here. God said he would be faithful to provide the one that would crush the serpent. And we've been waiting. And oh, Abraham, through Abraham, his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Your only son, Abraham. Offer him. This temptation here has to do with questioning the greatness of God. Is Yahweh great enough to accomplish his, accomplish his purpose if Isaac is offered up? Now, to clarify, when I speak of greatness, I'm not thinking only about God's ability to do so, but his right to do as he pleases. Are you clear on why the distinction is important? This has to do with the category of God's dominion. When we think of God's greatness. Psalm 135.6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Not only his ability to do so, but his right to do so. 
that has to do with the essence of God's greatness that has been historically understood as his dominion. Meaning, when we speak of God's omnipotence, we think of his physical power to do what he wants to do. When we speak of God's dominion, we're thinking of his moral power, where it's actually lawful for him to do what he wants to do. That really is the essence of this testing. To speak of God's greatness is to speak of his ability and his right to rule over his creation. And friends, that is so often put to the test in our life. His ability and his right. Is he really great? At the heart of this test lies the issue of control. To trust in God's ability and his right to do so means that I have to give up my demands, my ways, my timing, my expectations, and in faith, I trust that God is great enough to rule my life. Now, it sounds silly even saying that, doesn't it? God, are you great enough to rule my life? But how often are you on the wrestling mat refusing to believe that? This means that when our lives are marked by anger, by rage, by bitterness, by stress, frustration, it may be an indicator that we are failing the test of believing that God is actually great. That's what comes out of a heart that refuses to not be in control because it believes that God is not able to control. How was Abraham then able to wake up the next morning, travel not one day, two, but three, to build an altar and to maintain his confidence before God? Hebrews is helpful. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, we read that by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac your, seed, your offspring shall be named. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham had faith in God's greatness. That even if this son, my only son, is dead, he's able to raise him up. Because God has already promised, through Isaac, your seed shall be blessed. God is great, so I don't have to be in control. That's what Abraham concludes. Abraham considered God's greatness and his goodness wrapped up in God's ability and his willingness to raise up Isaac from the dead if need be. Therefore, through the testing of this faith, I can remain steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, because I know who this God is. Ultimately, Abraham's faith and expectation was in God, in his character. The rest were just simply details. God will provide, but we can expect and must expect that his provision will be tested. And what we know of God and his character is the stability and the soul-nourishing provision in seasons of trial. Expect that his provision will be tested. Second observation. Not only should we expect that this provision will be tested, we should anticipate his provision being given. Anticipate his provision being given. Look how this is modeled for us in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took his hand, in his hand, the fire and the knife. And so they both went together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? 
Verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now, while God and his provision is most certainly the emphasis of Genesis 22, it does not mean that Abraham and his faith are are non-existent. We are intended to see and hear the confident anticipation of God's provision that drives Abraham forward through this narrative. Even his ability to answer questions has to do with his anticipation of God providing. Just look back, verse 3, Abraham rose early. This was not a, I'm just going to stay in the bed and maybe this didn't happen. He rose early the next day and made preparations. Verse 4, he traveled three days. And during those three days, he did not suddenly deviate, turn back and say, we're not doing this. He faithfully went forward. Verse 5, Abraham speaks not only of going over to the place to which they will worship, but did you notice how often he says, we're coming back. Verse 8, the centerpiece of this anticipation of God's provision, as of yet there is no lamb, but only his son. And Abraham looks ahead confidently, expectantly, said, God will provide for himself the lamb. Do you see, friends, how it is possible to have faith in God's provision and not yet know the plans of God? We have to have categories for that. We have to be able to say, I am confident that God will provide. I have no idea how he's going to do that. I don't know the the providential inner workings of how this is going to come to pass. But I can tell you, friend, my God is faithful. I'm anticipating his provision. Essentially, Abraham is saying to everyone around him, I don't yet know what God is going to do, but I know he's going to do it. God will provide for himself. It's the declaration of Abraham's trust in God and his expectation of this provision. Calvin encourages us and says, this example of Abraham, it's for our imitation. He goes on, in such straits or difficulties, the only remedy is to leave the event to God in order that he may open a way for us where there is none. We pay him the highest honor when in the affairs of perplexity, we nevertheless entirely accept his providence. You pay God the highest compliment that you could pay when you, in seasons of perplexity, leave the affairs of his providence to him. Abraham was one who expected God to provide. Do you? Do you expect God to provide for you? Not that you never doubt, but that you introduce those doubts to the testimony of God's faithfulness. We can live by faith, uncertain of the outcomes, but expecting God's provision. And if Abraham anticipated God's provision on the basis of the revelation he had, How much more so can we and ought we? We stand in this privileged position of surveying the vast horizon of redemptive history. And we can pick out the specific landmarks in this unfolding redemption and hold up different placards that testify of God's continued faithfulness to not only provide for his people, but to redeem them. We can gather all of that up. And look at it and say, my God shall provide. We have so much more to get our arms around, to gather up, to consider and meditate. Abram had tremendous amount. How much more so do we? And so friends, when we are tempted and tested, when we are those who are considering that I don't know if he will provide, and wondering how we can actually move forward in anticipating his provision, we do so by considering the testimony of God's faithfulness. We think here of this account. We think of the exodus through the Red Sea, the manna in the wilderness. We think of his preserving kindness 
in defeating the kings of Canaan that God brought his people in. We can think of the deliverance that was brought about by the judges and God's preserving his people even in captivity in Babylon. And most certainly, most clearly, in the provision of Christ. Is God faithful or not? The entire testimony of Scripture compels us to anticipate the gracious provision of God for His people. Are you anticipating? Are you looking? Are you expecting? Not on the basis of how good or great or poorly your circumstances look, but upon the basis of the character of God. We expect His provision to be tested. We anticipate His provision to be given. Lastly, let's consider the exhortation here that we are to rest in his provision for us. The expectation of Abraham's faith is now experienced. And this experience of God's gracious provision here, it ought to provoke us to rest. How so? Well, we are to rest in his provision of the Lamb. Look back at those words so that you might remember where they are at in your Bibles. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar and there laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for now I know You fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord... It shall be provided. God most certainly provided for himself the lamb. Now, can you imagine the sense of joy, the sense of relief as Abraham heard the rustling in the thicket behind him? Was he anticipating that as he walked up to this place looking for an animal? Looking for the provision that God might make? And yet moving forward each step, the wood in order, the fire... The knife, even moving forward with the very act, and then God saying, stay your hand. And hearing that wonderful sound of that ram being caught in the thicket, most certainly he would have felt a tremendous sense of rest upon knowing that ram that had been provided just as he believed God would do. Through the provision of this ram, Isaac would live. Isaac would have a son named Jacob. Jacob would have a couple of boys. They would become a nation. So that through this nation, all the nations of the world would be blessed through Jesus Christ. The entire future of humanity is suspended upon the provision of this lamb. And it's noteworthy that Genesis 22 contains the first mention of lamb, but it's most certainly not the last time we read of the lamb. The Passover, this time the lamb dies so that the firstborn son might live. In Exodus 12. The tabernacle. Well, now this time the lamb dies so that Israel might live. Numbers 28. The Gospels. God provides a lamb so that his people might not die. The book of Revelation. The lamb is the focus of heavenly worship and praise and song because the redeemed are redeemed so by the blood of the lamb. The provision of a substitutionary and sacrificial lamb is the hinge upon which all of God's promises and provisions are suspended. Without the provision of the lamb, we die. But because of the provision of the lamb, we rest soundly. Why? John 1.29, the next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John in his epistle, chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Peter would exhort the saints, reminding us, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Do you know the provision of the Lamb? And are you resting in that provision? Why can you rest in the provision of a lamb? Well, because it's through the provision of the lamb that the guilt of sin is removed. Placed upon the sacrifice of Christ, the lamb slain provides the covering and the cleansing from sin for all who believe. That is a big promise. Not just some sins, not just a few sins, but all the sins of anyone who believes upon this lamb. Guilt removed. But it's not just guilt, the provision of this lamb. It's through this that the judgment against our sin is satisfied. Guilt is cleansed. Judgment is satisfied. Sin demands death. Your sin demands judgment. My sin demands hell. And yet... God has made provision that through His merciful gift and faithfulness, there's mercy. Judgment against all sin, it's a certain fact. And the promise of the gospel is that the judgment of all who believe, it falls upon Christ. Christian, do you know what that means? It means that God is not waiting, lurking, ready to condemn his people. Christ was condemned for our sin. The Heavenly Father waits to be gracious to you. We heard this morning in Micah 7.18, he delights in mercy. Those promises are more than cheap little passing comments that we can just throw around, they are the substance of our faith because the Lamb has been provided. That's what we rest in. Not only the resting of this Lamb, but we rest in actually the provision of obedience. It's very tempting to end here at verse 14. Jehovah Jireh, the Lamb provided upon the mount of the Lord. Amen. Let's sing our final hymn. But notice that the pericope actually ends with verse 19. This is, this is the summation of the story. If you leave off verses 15 through 19, you haven't finished the story. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time. He'd already called the first time, right up here in verse 8 and verse 9. By myself I've sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring in the stars of heaven and the sand of this, on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men as they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba in sea. Contextually, this language of blessing being attached to obedience. Did you notice that? It has everything to do with the covenant that God made with Abraham. God promised Abraham two things, a people and a place. You can read about this in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. It's the same promise that's expanded in those three chapters, but essentially God is promising through Abraham, the federal head, a people and a place. I'm through you, I'm gonna make a nation. It's going to bless all the nations through your seed. And Abraham, I'm going to give you a place because you need a place to grow. You need to be fruitful and multiply. And I need to establish a place. I'm not going to tell you this yet, but there's going to be a temple there. That's going to play a big part in understanding my provision. So I'm, I need to give you a place, and I, I'm going to bring you into that place. Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15, and Genesis 17. God promises a people 
and a place. And the terms of this covenant are suspended upon the obedience of Abraham and his seed. Abram is the federal head through which all the blessings and the curses of this covenant would flow to God's people, to the sons of Abraham. And God was faithful to his people. God was faithful to Abraham. The old covenant, to which this is a part, gave birth to the new covenant. The whole purpose of the old covenant was to bring forth the Redeemer, the Messiah, the kingdom of Israel, gives birth to the kingdom of Christ. And so he says here, your obedience, blessing. Now what is fascinating and what is so assuring to us and why I say we need to rest in obedience has everything to do with understanding which covenant we are in. The good news of the gospel that as God's people, we are members of the new covenant and we too are part of a covenant where all of these promises are suspended upon obedience. Can I tell you the best news you'll ever hear today? To be a member of the new covenant, all of the promises given to you are suspended not on your obedience, but upon the faithful works of Christ, who was obedient on our behalf. He is the federal head which all the blessings of this covenant flow. And so we are assured of these blessings, not because of just how God may or may not feel a particular day, but because he is the eternal one who's unchanging and he has made a covenant, the Godhead between the Father and the Son, and we step into, we are brought into this new covenant. Christ was faithful. Christ was obedient. All the blessings are ours. Christian, rest in the obedience of Christ. Not only the Lamb provided, but the obedience of the Son faithfully. We read about this and we're reminded of this in in Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Paul tells us that by the work of Christ, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us and that we are made the righteousness of God in Him. We rest in his provision for us. The Christian, then, is one who can sing and ought to sing the loudest and announce with most confidence that his God is the God who provides. The Lamb of God, who's the very Son of God, dies so that the people of God might live. So then, if God has provided for us in the greatest possible way through the giving of his son, what is left for us to fear? What is left for you to be anxious about? If he has sacrificially given that which is most costly, what more could we ever lack? Yet you know as well as I do that it is at this point right here that we are most tempted to doubt God. We know intellectually, Lamb of God, slain for the foundation of the world, for God's people, and yet what do I wake up with at 3.30 tomorrow morning wrestling with in my own thoughts? Is he really going to provide for me here? Is this not the great climax of Romans 8? The Apostle Paul unpacks justification by faith and then presses this doctrine into our lives in difficult circumstances by means of what application? Romans 8 is most likely an allusion to Genesis. That would mean our batteries are dead. We can switch to... Good to go? All right. Most likely an allusion to Genesis 22 when Paul says in Romans 8... He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, 
or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Justification, being right with God by the declaration of God and what he has done through his son is pressed into our lives in the face of difficult circumstance. And the whole premise of this portion of scripture and Genesis 22 is the same emphasis. Abraham's only son was spared through the provision of the lamb, but God's only son was not spared because he is the lamb provided. In the cross, we see that God has actually provided our greatest need, forgiveness, and he has ensured our greatest provision, salvation. And if that has been accomplished, Christian, what do you lack? And why would you ever doubt that you would lack it? All of our earthly provisions and comforts, everything that we could ever need in this earthly life is anchored upon this reality of who God is and the giving of his son. Even if we face tribulation, danger, persecution, famine, death, we shall be provided for by the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why we can sing, whatever my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him, I leave it all. It is a song that testifies of this very truth. God's provision, confident of his goodness and his greatness, his ability to do all things, resting soundly upon the provision of the lamb, that God himself provides the lamb. So let's look to the lamb and trust him as his people. Father, we thank you for the great promise that's given to us in your word. We thank you for the many pictures that we have that testify of your goodness, your grace, and your faithfulness. Father, help us to trust and to rest in you and help us to place our faith soundly upon the provision of your son, not only for salvation, but Father, for the working out of our salvation. As you continue to conform us to the image of your Son, Lord, help us to be those who are found accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone, we pray. Amen.